In the movie Apollo 13, after an oxygen tank explosion, Tom Hanks utters the unforgettable line, Houston, we have a problem. In response, every member of Mission Control Center springs into hyper-focused action. The way in which they all work together toward a new goal of getting the astronauts immediately home is made clear when Ed Harris's character says, I want you all to forget the flight plan. From this point on, we are improvising a new mission. It becomes their singular focus. From there, the team works tirelessly around the clock to solve the problem faced by Captain Jim Lovell and his crew. Now imagine for a moment if when Tom Hanks said, Houston, we have a problem, flight control Ed Harris responded, I'm sure you'll figure it out. That's not really my area. And then he went back into his office, shut the door, and just started looking over the original flight plan again. That would make for a much different movie, obviously. And in the real situation, of course, a response like that would have been fatal for the astronauts in Apollo 13. Now, in our text tonight, we're going to see a significant problem boil over in the life of the church, a problem that could have split the body in a really vicious way. And in response, the apostles essentially say, you know, that's not really our area. Why don't you guys deal with it? And then they just head back into their offices to study and pray. So what are we to make of that? And seeing that even the most dynamic church of all time had significant internal issues that needed to be dealt with, what do we do when conflict or disappointment or offense rear their heads in our own Christian fellowships? I think we'll find that, as we've been seeing again and again in these chapters, the answer just isn't as simple as, well, just copy what the Jerusalem church did, copy what the apostles did, and everything will be great. Because the truth is, there's a lot we just don't know about this situation. Many of you are familiar with the story. Even if you're not, it's really straightforward. There's an internal conflict between two groups. There's a complaint. There's a course of action agreed upon to deal with it. But listen, here's the thing. We don't know if their plan solved the problem. There's no follow-up in the whole book. There's no follow-up. We don't know if the plan was God's idea or man's idea. There's no comment one way or the other. We don't even know if the problem was actually real at all or if it was only a perceived offense, a perceived issue. And so there's just a lot we don't know about this situation. And so as has often been the case in our studies here, the simple answer or the simple idea of, well, we just pattern you know, what we do after the first century church, that's an inadequate answer, right? And so we want to take a critical look at a critical moment of church history here, and we'll begin in verse 1. It says, in those days, as the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. In those days, what kind of days were they? Really great days. Uh, Crazy days for sure, but they were days of really rapid growth. We would call it revival or an awakening around Jerusalem. They were days of signs and wonders and miracles. They were days of everyday gatherings to study and worship and share in the Lord's Supper together house to house. They were also days of growing persecution. There was just a lot going on in and around the church. 
as the Holy Spirit was working through all of these people and the word was spreading out. And, and we've seen in previous studies that now the message is sort of starting to spread out to the villages and towns surrounding Jerusalem. It can't be contained. And so just a ton is going on. But even during this remarkable time of revival and miracles, there were internal problems cropping up. We saw one significant one back in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. That was a significant problem that Luke highlighted. Here's another one. A divide was growing between two demographic groups within the church. They're identified as Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews. Hellenistic Jews were those Jewish people who lived outside of Israel, outside of Judea, and in, out in the Gentile world, and therefore they spoke Greek uh, as a common practice rather than Aramaic, which is what the Hebraic Jews spoke. And of course, their differences weren't only about language. This wasn't just a language thing. There was a cultural divide as well between these two groups. Now, the first question is, was it true that the Greek-speaking widows were being systematically neglected? And, and the truth is, we, we simply don't know if this was actually happening or not. The complaint was that it was happening, but have you ever been offended by something that wasn't actually happening, that you thought, that person said this about me, and then you find out, I didn't say that at all about you, or oh, I completely misunderstood, Right? Or maybe the oversight was accidental. You don't know. Have you ever had someone come up to you and say, I saw you at the corner of Grangeville and 11th and you didn't wave at me. And you're thinking, I don't know what's going on. I was, you know, my kid was like throwing stuff at me from the back seat. And I'm lucky we didn't T-bone each other, right? And, or maybe this really was a systematic targeted problem that had cropped up among these groups. We just don't know. What we do know is that racial prejudice would dog the church consistently throughout the end of the book of Acts. It's just going to keep cropping up. And obviously, this was a problem that would uh, hit Paul a lot. And there's just a lot of baggage when it came to Judaism and Christianity and how the church was going to navigate all of that. Now, whether this neglect was real or only perceived doesn't actually matter for our reading, right? It's a big issue that the two groups are starting to divide over the problem. One group was saying, hey, look, our widows, our vulnerable members here are being denied absolutely essential charity. You're withholding from them something they actually really need for survival. And we've noticed that you only happen to be doing it to people of a certain ethnic group, right? Now, churches have split over much, much less than this issue. Christian author Tom Rainier did research for a book. He polled a bunch of church leaders to find out what sort of fights they'd experienced in their churches. Here are a few that he listed in that book. An argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. No problem here. Okay, we're good. A 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase, black or brown, black, obviously, two, three, or four drawers, three, obviously. I don't know what they're arguing about. Okay, here's another one. Uh, a dispute because communion was served with cranberry grape juice instead of just grape juice. We'd have a problem there. We've <laughs> snuck some cranberry in from time to time. And a church argument and vote, and a vote over whether or not a clock in the worship center could be removed. Okay, so 
those are sort of sad and silly issues. But this one that we're looking at here is not. This is, this is a real thing, right? We're talking about a group of people who are saying, hey, you are specifically targeting us as a group of people and withholding absolutely essential distributions that these vulnerable widows need for their regular survival. Now, before we move on, let's be encouraged here. God can do great and powerful and wonderful things even through imperfect churches. And that's really good news because there is no perfect church. Every church is an imperfect church, right? Now, it doesn't mean that problems shouldn't be addressed or that concerns should never be raised, but there is a sort of mindset that we in America can sometimes fall into that says, okay, well, I'm, let's say I'm moving and I need to figure out which church to go to. And this church over here, well, this church doesn't spe- address a specific need that I feel. My group is being neglected. And a lot of times people will call or email into the church and say, hey, do you have this X group, a particular style of group, a particular demographic ministry, like a club where they get together? Do you have that? Because I have to go to a church that has that kind of group. And this is why many churches in America are replete with different clubs, different groups of every shape and form and fashion. Uh, And the idea is that, you know, every sort of demographic category can be represented so as to not make anyone feel neglected, right? Now, listen, if that's how the Lord is leading a specific church, uh, then that's great. You know, we're not poo-pooing that just for the sake of, of talking down about it. What I'm saying is that if you're going to join a congregation or be part of a church somewhere, you should do so because you're led by the Spirit when it, about where you're supposed to go, right? Uh, it's not about the church's array of programs or how desirable that looks to you and for your preferences and things like that. After all, it's a body you're joining, not a buffet, right? And we just have more of a buffet mindset if we're not careful here in the West of, well, I want to be served. I want my preferences chosen. So let me choose the place that seems like it will serve my preferences the most. And that's not the way the Lord wants us to join with a local fellowship. He wants to lead us to a particular place in a particular gathering so that we can fit in a particular way in his universal body. Verse 2 says, Then the twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching about God to handle financial matters. They got the whole church together, Luke says. And so... Obviously, the apostles considered this to be a really big deal. They're taking it very seriously. We know the church had to have more than 5,000 people. Some scholars estimate it upwards of 25,000 members at this point. Uh, Whatever the number is, it's a big crowd, a very large crowd. I don't know when the last time you were in a crowd of 10,000 people was, uh, but that's a big, big group. But the 12 say, you know what? This is what's going on. Everybody gets together. We got to get everybody here who can be here. If you're a member of the church, get here. Let's talk about it. And then after convening everyone together, which would have been just this huge feat, a monumental task, and think of the expectation, think of the uh, mindset of the people coming coming in. They've been meeting house to house. The gatherings are somewhat casual and impromptu. And now they say, hey, we're having an all-church meeting. Everybody get together. We're going to go meet over there. Everybody, 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 and then the 12 get up, 
And I'm sure the word had spread, you know, there's been complaints and murmurings going around. People know what it's about. And word had spread, and then the 12 get up to address this issue, and here's what they say, this is your problem, not our problem. Wow. At least that's how I probably would have heard it if I was in the audience that day. Their message wasn't, hey, stop everybody, we need to unify. Let's all join together and hold hands. It wasn't, hey, you people over there, you need to repent because you've done something wrong. Their message was, we're not going to handle this because it wouldn't be fitting for us to do so. Now, wait just a minute. Didn't Jesus wash their feet and say, hey, you need to do this too? Aren't we called to take the place of the lowest servant? Absolutely. It wasn't that the apostles were unwilling to perform that kind of service. It's that they were unwilling to neglect what their master had asked them to do in order to do something else. Listen, there's always something else that you can do uh, in ministry or in the Christian life or for the Lord, right? Uh, There are more places and more opportunities and more needs than any one of us could ever hope to imagine that we could apply ourselves to, right? I mean, we all understand that. Okay, you're gonna go to India, you're gonna go to Africa, you're gonna go to Asia, you're gonna go to South Central Los Angeles, you're gonna stay in Hanford. I mean, even just talking about locations, we can only be in one place at one time. The whole world needs ministry. And so we understand, right, that there's always something else you could be doing for the Lord. And there's always more needs somewhere else, right? whether that's near or far. And so it's not that they were unwilling to serve people. It's that they said, hey, listen, our master, our king, Jesus Christ, has asked us to do something very specific, and we are not going to stop doing that to go do something else, even though that something else may have been important or significant to a lot of people. The the ministry they're talking about, helping widows, that's an important ministry, something that needed to be done, something that needed to be done well and to be done right and to be done in a godly fashion, for sure. Nowhere were they saying that's not important. What? We're, we're distributing to the widows. Who allowed that? They're not saying that at all. They're saying, yeah, of course that's important, but we're not going to be the ones to do it. And so uh, while every Christian is given the general charges of compassion and kindness and service, all sorts of general charges that God has given us, we're each then given specific commissions and giftings so that we can serve in the body of Christ in particular ways. Listen, God wants you to serve and function in his body in a particular way. And it's your job to discover what that way is and walk in that. Those good works that have been set before you, not in just a general sense, but in a specific sense, you're to discover that and walk in that and to operate in the body of Christ in a specific way. Paul explained in the book of Corinthians that there are different gifts, different ministries, different activities, he said. And he said, they are given by the same God who activates each gift in each person, distributing as he wills, right? Therefore, if God has activated some gift or calling in your life, it is not fitting or desirable for you to neglect those things and instead do some other ministry that seems good or maybe even is good. It's not desirable to the Lord and it's not ultimately good for the body. When you have parts of a body doing things that they're really not supposed to do, it ends up as a problem. 
Easiest example, you lift with your legs, not with your back, right? We've all made the fun choice to lift with our lower back, and a lot of you have paid for it, right? Maybe in a small way, maybe in a big way. But in a spiritual sense, using this analogy that the New Testament gives us as of us each being a different part of the body of Christ, the idea is, listen, God gives you a yoke, a weight to pick up and carry. And if we're saying, yeah, but I'm going to set that down for a while and go over here and do something else that seems good. It's not what the Lord has called me to do. It's not what the Lord has gifted me to do. But look, people need this done, or I want to do it, or this is what people are asking me to do. And it's, yeah, I'll just go and do that. Okay, well, then that's like lifting with your back instead of your legs. And in the long run, that's going to be bad for the church body in a local sense and in a universal sense. And so Paul says it very plainly and very clearly, individual gifts, individual callings, individual activation of what God wants you to particularly do in his body. Now, your ears may have perked up there at the end of verse two where I read, not be right to handle financial matters. It's often translated to wait tables in a lot of the versions. The term used there is uh, uh, used a lot of times in the New Testament, I'm told. Sometimes the phrase is used for the table where you would eat. And sometimes it's for the table where money was changed, like the tables that Jesus overturned in the temple. And we recall that individuals like Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira, what did they do? They came and brought money to the apostles. They converted land to money and then gave that to the apostles. And so it's very possible, and a lot of the scholars feel that the widows weren't being served food, soup kitchen style. They, were, they would come and receive money so that they could go and buy food. Verse three, therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, who we can appoint to this duty. What I find remarkable here uh, is that the apostles assumed that all the Christians could act in a mature spiritual manner. Remember, they're talking to everybody. They're talking to the whole congregation. And they say, hey, everybody, you don't actually need us to solve this problem you can solve this problem. And more than that, I think it's possible that they were applying a, a great lesson they had learned from Jesus to this situation. Remember in the Gospels, they were once among a crowd of thousands full of very hungry people who needed supply. And they went to the Lord and said, you gotta do something. You gotta do something about this. Now, what did Jesus say to them? He said, yeah, you give them something to eat. And they were, they were like, what are you talking about? Just get rid of these people. And he said, no, you give them something to eat. You solve this problem, right? And now that the, the group of people are coming before the apostles as the leaders here, their response is, okay, you give the widows something to eat. You solve this problem in a godly way. You begin to serve and to support others. You join the ministry one to another. You're all equipped to do it. You're all a part of the same spirit as, as we are. We're all in this together. Go and do what you're supposed to be doing. Now, it's clear that the apostles weren't being cavalier. They weren't being uncaring. They simply knew it wasn't their responsibility. It wasn't the responsibility that God had given them at the time. God had given the apostles an awesome responsibility. Remember, there's no New Testament written yet. There's no video of Jesus circulating on YouTube. It's these guys these guys who, are, who have to lay the foundation of the church and spread the teaching and the doctrine and to do so faithfully, it's these guys that the Holy Spirit is giving gifts of healings and signs and wonders to, 
to verify the message of the gospel, right? So they had a very awesome responsibility, a very needful responsibility, and they say, yeah, this right here, this is not our responsibility right now. But that doesn't mean they didn't think this was important. They called it a duty. He says, hey, we'll find some guys that we can appoint to this duty. It wasn't the apostles' job, but it was an important job nonetheless. And it was a job that needed to be accomplished through spiritual people. It wasn't to be accomplished by a strategic program. They didn't establish a curriculum or a set of procedures or a flow chart. They said, hey, listen, go find some spiritual guys, and then God's going to work through them. You want God to work through us? He is. God's going to work through you as well. And they said, listen, go find some guys, men who live as martyrs for the Lord. That's the word that they use there for good reputation. They say, go find some martyrs. Love that. Men who are already being led by the Spirit and filled with the Spirit. Men who are already applying godly insight to the way they live life. He says, that's all you need. You just need people who are walking after the Lord. You just need people that are spirit-filled, and then they're going to be able to solve this big problem that's about to split the church in two, and we'll see you guys later. It's pretty interesting. Verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the preaching ministry. There are higher priorities in church life and in the Christian life. In the life of a church, the preaching of the gospel and the teaching of God's word and corporate prayer are non-negotiable top priorities. They just are. That doesn't mean that other things aren't good and aren't important. They are. The welfare work that they were doing among the widows was significant and it was needful and it was commanded by God. No one's saying it wasn't. But as far as the apostles were concerned, nothing was of higher priority for them than prayer and preaching. And again, their response shows that they were convinced that the congregation before them would be able to deal with this problem. They knew how serious division was, but here they say, by the way, we're done talking about this. Right? That's the other sort of between the lines thing that they're saying. And it's like, yeah, here's this problem. Okay, uh, go find some guys to deal with this. This is your issue, not ours. And we're done talking about it. We're leaving to go study the word and to pray. Verse five, the proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, not Pumbaa, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. The answer from the 12 was probably not what the people were expecting that day, but it satisfied their complaints. We don't know how they went about selecting these guys out of the thousands there represented in the congregation, but somehow they all had to work it out. They all had to solve this problem together, and and we don't know how they went through this process, but they did, and it seems like they figured it out relatively quickly as far as Luke is concerned. Commentators point out that all seven of these men have Greek names, indicating that they were probably all Hellenistic believers. And from our perspective, this shows some great maturity, I think. The Hellenistic group was probably the minority, and they were the ones that were complaining and felt slighted. But the group as a whole empowered that minority group, right, to address what the Greek speakers saw as a shortcoming in the life of the church. They said, okay. You think this is good? We're going to give you, uh, effectively, control over this issue. Go for it. We're going to get all Greek-speaking guys to deal with this issue. And then these seven Greek-speaking Hellenist guys were given charge to minister not just to their own, but they also were going to turn around and minister to the Hebraic widows as well. It's great trust. It's great unity. It's great grace being demonstrated here by the congregation. 
Were these guys the first deacons? This passage is frequently cited as the beginning of the church office of deacon. But is it true? We don't need to fight about it. We don't want to fight. Let's all get along. I'll say this. None of these guys are ever called deacons in the Bible. They just aren't. In fact, at least one of them, Philip, is specifically labeled as the evangelist. Luke doesn't call him Philip the deacon. He says, Philip, the evangelist. Uh, After this passage, we're going to see Stephen immediately doing other things, not deaconing. Namely, he's going to be working signs and wonders. He's going to be preaching. He's no longer sitting behind a table with the widows. And so where does the idea come from that these are the first deacons? You've probably heard that before. We might have even said it before. In these verses, the words diacona and diaconian are used where we read distribution in financial matters or serve tables. And so some people feel that, well, there you go, that's the start of the deacons. And that's fine. But here's some food for thought from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. It says, the words connected with deacons do not seem to have a technical sense here. These words in the Greek New Testament are commonly used in a non-specialized sense. The best approach seems to be that these seven men held a temporary position for the purpose of meeting a specific need. So it's not something to fight over or be upset about, but it's just kind of an interesting moment that if you would have asked me, who were the first deacons? I would have said the seven guys in Acts chapter 6. And we got to pause and step back and say, wait a minute, are they ever called deacons? No. Okay. Do they say establish the office of the deacon? No. Okay. So we want to always be careful to make sure we're paying attention to whether we're reading things into the text. It's impossible for us to not bring ideas and preconceptions and thoughts into our reading of the Bible. Some of them uh, don't make a big difference, and some of them might make a big difference. And so we just want to be careful about that kind of stuff. Of the seven men, we'll see a little more about two of them. Stephen, of course, will be the first to die for the cause of Christ. And we'll see more about Philip, who has a longer role in the book. We're given the tidbit that Nicholas was a proselyte, meaning that he was a Gentile by birth, but had at some point converted to Judaism. There's an argument among the early church fathers as to whether he, Nicholas, became the leader or the inspiration of the sect of the Nicolaitans, which the Lord hates. Uh, We're not sure. Some of the church fathers said he was. uh, Some of them says he wasn't. We do know that church history tells us that five of these seven guys were ultimately martyred for their faith, laid down their lives for Jesus Christ, and so they lived out their reputation uh, till the end as faithful spiritual men. Verse 6, they had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. It's interesting, the apostles had said, we're going to devote ourselves to prayer, and they meant it. They did mean it. When the congregation shows up with these seven guys, the apostles say, all right, let's pray. We're devoting ourselves to prayer. You're going to pray with us. We're going to pray with you. They practiced what they preached. They devoted themselves to what they had been called to do. And they don't say to these guys, now remember, you answer to us. They say, yeah, guys, go do the ministry. Go do whatever. Go serve the Lord. Go be used by God. Go be full of the Spirit. The apostles trusted the Holy Spirit and therefore were able to trust Spirit-filled men and not clamp down on them, not keep a thumb on them. They just say, great, we're laying our hands on you. Go, go do whatever the Lord wants you to do. That's great. Verse seven, so the preaching about God flourished. The number of the disciples in Jerusalem multiplied greatly, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Here, Dr. Luke gives us one of his regular health checkups on the church. If you go through the book of Acts, you see he does these sort of summary statements every now and then. 
he's sort of taking a reading of the vitals. If you spend any time in the hospital, feels like all the time they're coming in checking your vitals, right? Just making sure what's going on with your heart, what's going on with your, I don't know, I only know about the heart. What's going on with your heart? The only time I've been in the hospital is when my wife is recovering from a C-section and I don't know what's going on and I'm all tired and stuff. So, But he's taking vitals of the church. And despite the issue described here, the church was healthy and thriving and continuing in its heavenly work. And we see that it was the preaching that led to conversions. It wasn't the welfare program. It wasn't the administrative structure. The gospel is the power of God that brings salvation. The other ministries are significant. They're needful. They're even commanded. But one stands ahead of the rest and must always be the principal focus of every congregation. That's the preaching of God's word. It has to come first. It has to be primary. That's the power of God unto salvation. These other things are important, necessary, essential, even commanded, but this comes first. The preaching of the gospel, we're told, led to a large number of Jewish priests converting to Christianity. It's estimated that there were 8,000 priests attached to the temple ministry in Jerusalem. And so what an amazing revival it must have been. I thank God that he called some to preach to priests and others to help widows, right? What if everybody did the mission control from Apollo 13 thing? and say, okay, we have this problem. Now everybody, all of our focus is to shift over and just deal with this widow program. That's what we're doing. That's who we are now. Everybody change the mission. Throw out the old flight plan. We're all doing this now. And the Holy Spirit is like, yeah, there's, there's enough of you for this work to go around. These widows might be hungry right now. We're going to deal with that. But these priests over here are spiritually hungry. They need a physician. They need the gospel. They need salvation. And so that's the idea. This text serves as an important example of why it's so important that we live spirit-filled lives and not just become bandwagon Christians. If the 12 had been bandwagoners just doing what seemed important to the group of Hellenists, then they would have left their primary calling of teaching. Evangelism may have stalled out. A lot of sick people uh, wouldn't have been healed. All sorts of other ministry wouldn't have happened. God knows how to get his work done. He does. And the Holy Spirit is strong enough to work all over the world every single day of the week, every single second of every single day, right? I mean, the Holy Spirit can do all of that through people. He knows how to get his work done. What he needs is willing servants who don't try to be the boss themselves and say, you know what? This is what we need to be doing because after all, I did a demographic survey and a certain group of people complained to us and so now we need to go and do that. And the Holy Spirit is like, I got it covered. <laughs> I got it covered, guy. I know how to get the work of God done. We know how to spread the gospel. We know how to accomplish God's will. I'm God. And you're to be the vessel through which God works. And so, you know, what God needs and what God is looking for is willing servants who aren't trying to be the boss. The Lord said to Jeremiah, go where I send you, right? Not public opinion, not whatever is trending, not whatever has the limelight. Go where the master sends, and so applying this message and the principles we find here, what do we do when we encounter a problem, a need, a divide, some disappointment within a Christian fellowship? Well, first, don't cut and run. God wants his body to remain unified. And we see that even with a really significant, really hurtful problem, the body 
could stay unified. They could work through this issue and come out the other side of it together. It's possible as we serve the Lord. Second, if you, you have to determine whether or not the issue actually concerns you. It's true that a problem like this impacts the whole church, but in our example here, we have at least four different groups that you could belong to if you are in the story, right? You have the people who felt slighted or offended, you have the people who are being accused, you have the apostles, and you have the people called to engage on this particular issue. Now, Luke refers to all of them as disciples. Notice that word keeps cropping up, disciples, disciples, disciples. They're all disciples, and that's the place to begin, to remember that my role and your role, all of us together, we're called to discipleship with one another. One Bible dictionary describes the word this way, a learner whose thoughts are accompanied with endeavor. Every member of Christ's body is not only to be a pupil hearing the teachings of God's, but to be an adherent who imitates their teacher, Jesus Christ. And in that sense, a disciple is much, much different than just an onlooker, right? We are disciples. You're a disciple, I'm a disciple. We're all disciples together. And as we've seen, it is expected that all disciples in the church would act and respond in maturity and spirituality. There's not really a reason why we shouldn't. It's expected of everybody, the whole group, even in a tense situation like the one we're seeing here. But as a disciple, when an issue arises in your Christian fellowship, here or elsewhere, you've got to figure out where you fit in the situation. Are you the one being accused? Then it's your duty to honestly humble yourself before the Lord and say, yeah, Lord, is it me? Have I wronged my spiritual family in some way? Uh, and be willing to accept correction and make it right. Perhaps some prejudice has crept in. No one was... I, you know, no one's saying that for sure these, you know, Hebrew-speaking Jews were saying, getting together and conspiring, let's make the Grecian widows feel bad. Let's make the Greek-speaking widows go hungry. But if that was really happening, this prejudice had slipped in and caused this big issue. And so if we're the ones being accused of some offense, we, we need to resist that urge to immediately get defensive and immediately throw up our own arms and say, okay, Lord, is it me? Has that happened? Do I need to make it right with my brothers and sisters here? Are you the one bringing the accusation? If, if that's the group you're part of in the story, your duty is to first be sure you are not complaining and murmuring. That never pleases the Lord. And your duty is to try to honestly evaluate whether you feel like something is happening or whether it actually is happening. There's a difference. And if you feel slighted, is, is, is it something that's actually wrong, a true offense, or is it just that your preference is not being chosen? In Apollo 13, when the distress call first goes out, Houston, we have a problem, a lot of the guys in the mission control looking at their computers are convinced that there wasn't really an explosion. They say, man, the numbers are too crazy. Nothing really happened. They say it must, must be an instrumentation malfunction right? And they were wrong. But you know what? That happens sometimes, that the instrumentation isn't working right, not just with spaceships, but with our human mind as well, where we're perceiving something. Our odometer is not quite right. And we're thinking, this is what's going on. And then someone else with maybe an outside perspective or a clear head comes in and says, yeah, no, that's not, that's not what's going on. That person isn't sliding you. That person isn't trying to offend you. And so if we are the ones bringing the accusation, that's kind of what we got to work through. When conflict arises, are you part of, you know, the apostle group in the story? Meaning, 
Are you part of a group that needs to figure out if the Lord doesn't want you to be involved in that particular situation? Because often the Lord doesn't. Not everybody goes to Africa. Not everybody goes to Asia. Not everybody deals with every single issue that is going on in our midst, at least not directly. And the apostle said, listen, this isn't our area. This isn't our calling. We have responsibilities. We have gifts. We have things that, the, that God has asked us to do, and we're going to do those things. It wasn't because they just didn't want to get involved. It was because they were tuned in with what God had given them to do, and they had devoted themselves to that. They said, hey, we're going to press on in the way that the Spirit is leading us. If God has called you to some work or ministry or situation, don't get sidetracked on some other project that he's called other people to be a part of. Encourage them, pray for them, but you work in the section of the vineyard that God has put you in to work in. And finally, maybe you're part of the fourth group, one of the seven set apart to address some particular need that arises or some particular problem. When you put your hands on the job, remember, it's not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit that you accomplish God's will. Don't always assume that someone else is responsible to do the job. It might be you. This might be a work that has been set before you to walk in because there is something that God has for each of us to do in his body. And he wants each of us to discover those things so that his dynamic, powerful work might spread and flourish in and through our lives and through our churches and in our communities.